Hello and welcome to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and today I'm really pleased to be joined by two people who are going to talk to us about the transition or the expected transition from fossil fuel-driven vehicles to electric cars and what that might mean in particular for taxation and how we tax motoring. First, I'm joined by Steve Gooding, who is currently director of the RAC Foundation. I first knew Steve when he was a senior civil servant of the Department of Transport. And indeed, before he was director of the RAC Foundation, he was director general for roads and cars at the Department for Transport. I'm also joined by Stuart Adam, who's a senior economist here at the IFS and one of the countries in the world's experts on taxation. So as I said, we're going to talk about this transition from petrol and diesel cars to electric cars, and in particular, what that's going to mean for government revenues. So let's start, Steve, just by reminding ourselves, what is the government's plan here? What are its targets and objectives in terms of getting us into electric cars? And and how's it doing? So the first thing to say is the government's got a couple of very clear deadline dates that it set out, 2030 and 2035, from which dates, in 2030, it will not be possible to register for sale a new fossil fueled road vehicle, particularly cars and vans that relates to. It's going to take a bit longer for trucks and possibly for motorbikes. And there's a five-year grace window for hybrid vehicles, but not yet tightly defined what sorts of hybrids to 2035, after which date we will not have fossil fueled vehicles in the showrooms for sale in this country. So those are the two clear lines the government has set. And that's in the context of the broader set of objectives that the government has set in its climate change strategy. And that's really that's really quite soon, isn't it? As I sit here, that's it. That's that. That's um, seven and a half years time. We'll only be able to buy electric and perhaps some hybrid cars. What fraction of current sales are electric? Well, the proportion of current sales has been shooting up. Electric cars have been really coming out of the the stocks here. And I think heading beyond 10% and and up to 20%. However, I think it's also important to say that we have just been through two and a bit very extraordinary years, starting with Brexit, then into COVID, then into the Ukrainian crisis. And so the number of new cars being produced, the number of new cars being registered is way down on what we would expect beforehand. And I don't doubt we'll come onto this in a moment. The amount of driving that we're doing and the amount of fuel that we've been consuming over that period is also down. So we've seen a fall in the market. We don't really know exactly what's going on there. But one of the issues is that if you're a fleet purchaser, and fleet purchases make up just over half of all of the new registrations, you might be thinking, let's hold on and see what new vehicles are coming through, particularly electric ones, because there's an extremely favourable tax regime for company cars. If you're a company car driver, it absolutely pays you to have a look at getting an electric vehicle. I know people who will happily tell me that since they got an electric car as their company vehicle, they drive to work, they charge it at work, they get home, they got more electricity in it than when they set out in the morning, and it costs them nothing. Sounds like a pretty good deal. So if we're getting towards 20% of new car sales being electric, and that's up from, roughly speaking, diddly squat five years ago, what, what, what's driving that? Is, is, is that tax incentives? Is it just people going green and making their own decisions? Is it uh, manufacturers really pushing these things? 
I think it's, it is a mix of the two things you say predominantly. So first up, the company car tax treatment makes going electric very favourable. Also, I think it's fair to say that some companies focusing on their ESG reporting and looking at the E in ESG, where they're providing company cars, are quite keen to be providing those in a clean and environmentally sensitive and sustainable way. So they'd like their teams to be driving electric vehicles. We also see that in companies and in the public sector, where there's a tremendous appetite, for example, to have not just cars, but vans playing their part in cutting carbon emissions and indeed dealing with some of our air quality problems. And then at the other end of the scale, yes, there are a lot of people who like to show their green credentials. One of the things the government introduced was a little green stripe on your number plate to show that you've gone electric, a sort of badge of honour. And uh, I think suddenly something I've noticed in perhaps the slightly wealthier parts of the country is you see rather more green stripes. Because as of today, although more and more electric cars are coming to market, the first wave and the first models in each range tended to be quite expensive. We've been talking about the £40,000-plus range, and I don't know about you, Paul, but that's never been a part of the market that I've been in. And a lot of us think that the real game-changer will happen, if it happens, when the auto companies are able to produce the sub, certainly sub-30,000, and ideally hovering around £20,000 vehicles, the smaller ones, if you like, the small family runarounds. I'd be interested in your views about how that's going. I, mean, I have to say, uh, around me in a sort of metropolitan elite land in North London, uh, there are quite a lot of Teslas around, and my um, 20-odd-year-old Golf is looking increasingly out of place. What, what's your sense of the likelihood that we will meet this 2030 target to be no longer selling fossil fuel cars? Well, it's not a target, Paul. It's the law. So it's not a case that companies might not be able to achieve it. It's if the companies wish to sell cars in this country from those dates, they've got to comply with what's allowed to be sold. Now, I think it's also important to recognise that when we're thinking about emissions and we're thinking about the amount of fuel consumed and therefore the tax that yield the government gets, it's the whole car, as we call it, the car park, P-A-R-C for reasons I'll never understand, that we're talking about. So the new registrations are only a fraction of the total number of vehicles on the road. When we're thinking of the total number of vehicles on the road, we're thinking about your ancient Volkswagen Golf and my ancient Volkswagen EOS as well. And we're asking ourselves, I wonder how long you're going to keep that, that vehicle going? Because there's also evidence that whilst fleet purchases have been perhaps pausing and thinking, shall we go pure electric? What shall we do? What do our customers want? Private individuals have been thinking, maybe I'll hang on to my car a bit longer than I would normally. Perhaps I'm the sort of person who trades in for a new car every three years. Well, maybe I'll stretch it to four and just see what new vehicles are going to come through, whether there's a a vehicle design that's more appealing to me. And then last up, we've had all of the crises I said. Actually, if you go into a car dealership, it's quite hard to get a new car right now, bizarrely, because of shortages of semiconductors, wiring looms, and some of the disruption to global trade that was caused by the pandemic in the first place. There are container ships all over the world out of place. This has been hugely disruptive to the delivery of new vehicles to dealers, and people are looking sometimes at waiting lists of a year or more. Wow, well, that's uh, <laughs> not something I'll be intending to do terribly Quickly, so hopefully that's a um, you know, a relatively short term or you know, maybe a couple of year blip. But 
the overall picture you're painting, it seems to me, is a pretty positive one of a fairly swift shift towards uh, electric and away from petrol and diesel. But Stuart, there's some bad news here too, isn't there? We raise rather a lot of revenue from taxing petrol and diesel. And if I were the Chancellor, uh, this would be fairly high on my medium-term worry list. Yes, absolutely. The big ticket item here is duty, excise duty on petrol and diesel, which currently raises the government, well, expected £26 billion this year. That's in principle, due to jump up to £30 billion next year, though that's because the Chancellor has announced a a 5p cut in fuel duties that's supposed to be temporary. So next year, that will supposedly disappear. And on top of that, the assumption is that he'll increase fuel duty in line with inflation, which hasn't been done for the past 10 years. So I'm not sure that that jump in revenue is going to happen next year. But nevertheless, even the £26 billion that he's due to get this year, just from fuel duty, on top of that, there's vehicle excise duty that people pay every year on their ownership of a car and more in, in the year that the car's new. And then there are other as it were, bits and pieces. In London, there's congestion charge, ultra-low emission zone. There's all sorts of things with company car taxation and so on. And it's worth bearing in mind that if we're thinking about people switching to electric cars, there are outright tax breaks for electric cars at the moment that if they continue means that the Chancellor will lose even more revenue. So if you charge your electric car at home, there's a reduced rate of VAT on electricity, only 5% VAT, whereas on petrol and diesel, there's 20% VAT. And of course, that's 20% VAT on the price, including the excise duty that isn't there for electric cars. And as Steve said, there are big benefits for electric cars in terms of the company car tax regime, also in terms of vehicle excise duty and so on. So all in, there's potentially about £40 billion of tax revenue that on current policy that the Chancellor stands to lose. That's about 4% of all government revenue. Now, interestingly, the the, the government recognised that it's likely to lose that. It said it wants to carry on raising revenue from motoring, but it's given us essentially no indication of how it wants to do that. It's done nothing to prepare the ground for any new way of taxing motoring to make up for that lost revenue. And Steve, how how quickly is this likely to happen? I mean, whilst all new cars in 2030 will have to be electric, as you said, the stock of petrol cars will continue for some period. So assuming current policy, uh, this is a bit of sort of frog boiling here, isn't it? I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll gradually lose this. We're not going to lose it all overnight. No, that's absolutely right. So we did some calculations in the REC Foundation, widely informed from, from publicly available sources, but we, we took our calculations around to all manner of informed sources uh, to test them out. And we applied an entirely arbitrary number. We said, at what point do we think the Chancellor is going to have lost £5 billion from cars consuming petrol and diesel? So 
cars make up about 60, 60-ish percent of the, the total consumption of fuel. The rest is uh, commercial vehicles. And it's quite a range of possibilities. But broadly speaking, that £5 billion looks like it's going to have evaporated sometime between 2028 and 2032. So again, when you're thinking about fiscal cycles, and indeed you're thinking about model cycles in the automotive world, that's sort of the day after tomorrow. It's, it's really quite soon. Now, what I don't know, you know, we've, we've just heard that uh, in total, uh, motoring taxes raise 4% of the total tax yield. But the tax in particular that's vulnerable here is related to the consumption of fossil fuels. And we don't know, we can't be sure exactly how quickly that decline will come. There are other policy reasons that could well come along that might make it come sooner. In fact, what we said from our report was, this is, if you like, almost a best case scenario from the Treasury income perspective. Everything else the government is likely to do to achieve its climate objectives, to promote cycling and walking and more active travel, to restrict motor traffic in our towns and cities, to promote air quality, all of those things are likely to bring that date forward. And it feels to me, Stuart, like government's arguably in a bit of a bind here. I mean, it wants to promote the use of electric vehicles, in which case it doesn't want to tax them terribly much. But equally, it's going to be very worried about losing the revenue that it's getting at the moment. How how, how can it balance that off? I think that is the key question for the government, that I think in the long run, it wants to be taxing electric vehicles, um, not least because you know, even if they're not emitting any greenhouse gases from their exhaust pipes, they will still be causing congestion, causing accidents, causing damage to roads and so on. And we will still want to be doing things to discourage people from driving. So you don't just want to get the money completely elsewhere, just raise it from, you know, income tax or VAT or corporation tax or whatever. On the other hand, in the short term, we want to be encouraging people to switch over to electric vehicles. And so there's a genuine dilemma there that that when and how do you start taxing electric cars? I think my own view on that would be that you want to start taxing them quickly. And that's partly because anything new you do, anything like road pricing, for example, is going to take time to prepare the ground for and implement both technologically and politically. And partly because the more people have electric cars and the more people have got used to the idea that they won't be taxed on these things, the harder it's going to get to introduce tax on them. So my view would be that the government should start as soon as it can to bring in whatever new taxes it wants to apply to electric vehicles and instead do things to encourage the shift to electric cars that are inherently short-term one-off costs, not building in things that will last for the future. So one example is that it could put more money into the electric charging infrastructure, more charging points in public spaces, and so on. A second option, perhaps a few years down the line, would be that you could introduce scrappage schemes for old dirty cars to encourage people to get rid of them and buy electric cars instead. So that's something that would automatically 
disappear when there aren't any more petrol and diesel cars out there. And so you wouldn't need to be taking away something that's there at the moment. I think there are a few other things you could do along those lines. So my, my recipe would be bring in whatever taxes you want to apply to electric cars in the long run and then do things in the short term to encourage a shift over that will automatically disappear once that shift over to electric cars has happened. Does that make sense to you, Steve? It does make sense. And I think the government is on the horns of a dilemma here. But I want to take one step back first, which is I haven't actually heard a clear government statement that they intend in perpetuity to continue to tax motoring. I think it is entirely open to the government to decide that turning motoring green, getting rid of tailpipe emissions is part of the price of saving the planet. They could decide that. I'm not saying they will. People listening to this podcast are likely to be very familiar with the concept of external social marginal costs and all of the various externalities that Adam just listed, um, none of which are reflected in any actual calculation of taxes that motorists currently pay. And by the way, cars do practically no damage whatsoever uh, to the road surface. That's entirely down to heavy axle weight trucks. But let's just assume for the purpose of this thought experiment, the Chancellor has called up his officials and said, for goodness sake, £5 billion is going missing. Something has to be done. Then I think they've got to work out if they're going to carry on incentivizing people to go electric. At what point are they going to have to say, you know, it's going to stop sometime. And this idea of the uh, no vehicle excise duty, no annual charge, is going to end some point. And what we would say is stick with, a, I think, a reasonably well-established premise in the world of taxation, which is you don't do things retrospectively. You don't say, well, we told you we weren't going to tax this, but now we are. So if you look at the changes to vehicle excise duty over the years, if you and I, Paul, are paying the vehicle excise duty that related to the vehicles when it was registered, and the system's been through two or three uh, overhaul since then, it'll go through another one. And similarly, the rate of fuel duty has changed. And Adam has pointed out to us, it was surprisingly uh, to many, many people cut by the Chancellor last time he looked at it. But I'd say that um, the important thing is for the government to be clear and to say the deal is at a date that we're now going to tell you from that date, new zero tailpipe vehicles that don't need fossil fuels will be paying a charge and they'll be attracting vehicle excise duty but we are on average going to make sure that that charge and that vehicle excise duty is not going to be more than they would have had to pay for an equivalent petrol diesel vehicle quite hard to prove on a on a detailed mathematical basis but you can show those sort of things on average and second what we'd say is go for a simple distance charge i'm sure we'll get onto all of the many permutations that road pricing can take in the fevered brains of transport economists. But fundamentally, doing something as de-risked as possible that works is by far and away the best way to go. I think, in my view, the best tax to introduce, the best levy to introduce, is one that is fundamentally boring. People don't talk about it because it just happens, it just works, we've all got to pay it, we suck it up, but we trust that it's accurately collected. And what we need to do here is to think, if we only introduce a charge for the electric cars, don't do what some people are saying, scrap fuel duty. Why on earth would you scrap fuel duty? It absolutely accurately targets the one thing you want to get at, which is carbon. Keep the fuel duty there, 
for the existing vehicles, introduce some form of mileage charge for the new electric vehicles coming, find a simple way of doing it. There are various ways you could do that. But of course, we've also got to remember when we're thinking about this bigger picture, all of that sounds fine and I recognize it. And I suspect that the logic, if you're just looking at the vehicles, the logic would be all of the political parties brace themselves to put what they're going to do into their manifestos for the next election in order to be ready for 2028. But they're also dealing with a couple of other big things here, which we know about. A big shock to household income and inflation that's happening at the moment and cost inflation outstripping wage inflation. So we've got a a looming crisis there and we've got an energy price crisis. So one of the key cornerstones of promoting the electric car is how much cheaper it is to fuel than a fossil fueled vehicle. Many of us have seen our domestic energy bills rocketing up and Ofgem is cheerfully telling us that we ain't seen nothing yet. So you know there are there are other things moving here and all of that's got to be captured and thought through. But at the end of the day, if the government is going to maintain its tax yield from motoring, motorists have got to pay it. There's an awful lot in that. So you talked about a a simple distance charge, and that would in many ways replicate what we have with petrol and diesel duty, because that, for any given car, that's pretty closely related to the amount that you actually drive the car. How how would that actually work? I mean, do you envisage something where there'll be tax paid on the electricity as it goes into the battery, or would you imagine uh, some kind of thing in, in every car which measures literally how far you're driving or some other way of collecting that tax? Well, the thing is, Paul, despite the fact that we're both driving old cars, we've already got something in there that measures how far you're driving. It's called an odometer. Now, it is possible to find characters who can do things to your odometer, particularly uh, yours, because they can probably stick a drill in the back and make it go backwards. But what I'm saying, what the foundation is saying is, We're only talking about electric vehicles registered after a certain date. Let's call it 2028 to fit with the date when the the money disappears. Well, the, the electric vehicle of 2028 has a purely electronic dashboard. It's a computer on wheels. It's going to go back to the dealer for service. The dealer will be authorized to service it and read the mileage. The company selling it to you is monitoring any number of electronic feeds of data from that vehicle and we'll be able to know if somebody's tampering with it so actually the most simple thing you could do is there's a say there's a mileage charge we're going to say the average number of miles driven in a year is x so we're going to charge you y which could be a a lump sum like vehicle excise duty or it could be a monthly charge and if it turns out at the end of the year we read your odometer you've done fewer miles you get a rebate and if you've done more you'll get an invoice that's the very, very simplest. You could do that. Might not be very popular among those who get whacking great invoices at the end of the year. But then you would offer options. And at the extreme end, you could say, if, for example, you have a black box insurance policy, which is monitoring how uh, many miles you do in a month and what times of day you do your driving, and the insurance company is keeping track of that, well, we could link to that. So instead of an estimate of how many miles you're going to drive, we could actually charge you each month for the number of miles you drove that month. But you'd want that as an option rather than as something that everyone had to do so that they were, so it was all on a pay-as-you-go basis, as it were. Well, our, our guiding principle was to start with, if you weren't going to require drivers 
or the auto companies to do anything different from what they already do, could you do it? And the answer to that is, yes, you could in the way I've just described. Could you do something more sophisticated than that? Well, yes, you can. Each step of sophistication comes at a cost. And that cost might not be that great for the individual, hopefully. But let's remember one of the other highly desirable features of fuel duty from the Chancellor's perspective is that it has the lowest cost of collection of practically any tax or levy ever devised because it's actually levied at the refinery. There are very few actual payers of the duty to the Chancellor and evasion rates are eye-wateringly low. So you've also got an eye here that you could have a very sophisticated scheme, uh, as I said, that try to charge people per mile or even shorter distances, and it could be linked to the time of day and the road they were on and all those sorts of things. But that comes at a cost and a complexity. And we would say, hold fire on that. If what you want is to maintain your 27 billion, the simplest way of doing it is what we've just said. And the simplest way of doing it is almost certainly the best way of doing it. So, Stuart, um, Steve has outlined the costs of doing something more complex than a, you know, the most straightforward way of charging according to number of miles driven. Economists have traditionally been quite keen on a rather more complicated form of road pricing, which would vary it by time and place of driving, because there's very different levels of congestion at different times and places. Without going into how much it would cost to achieve that, Stuart, perhaps you could just explain what is so attractive, at least in principle, about road pricing of that kind. Yes, what's so attractive about it is essentially that congestion is a very big problem, and a very big problem that drivers cause to other drivers. And in fact, All of the kind of respectable estimates that I've seen, whether that's from governments or from academics, suggest it's by far the biggest damage that driving does, much bigger even than the estimated costs in, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. That's not to say that greenhouse gas emissions aren't a problem, but we just forget how much time as a nation we spend, we waste sitting in traffic jams. And that is really valuable time, whether you would otherwise be, you know, doing something you enjoy or doing some more work. Now, the thing with that is that a tiny fraction of the journeys that people make account for an enormous fraction of the congestion. Most of the time that people are driving, it's not on particularly congested roads. It doesn't cause great problems. But particularly in cities in rush hours, the congestion costs of driving are huge. And, you know, in London, we've had a congestion charge that's been reasonably successful. Obviously, hasn't got rid of congestion in London, far from it. But the estimates we've got suggest it would be much worse in the absence of the congestion charge. In principle, you could extend that to other places And you could make it more sophisticated so that rather than just being, have you entered this area in this day or not, you could vary it in a more fine-grained way by time and place. Now, there's clearly a trade-off there between how finely grained it is, how accurately we target higher taxes on driving a particularly congested road on particularly congested times, versus how complicated it gets. 
And I completely take Steve's point that, you know, the economist's dream of ideal road pricing could get really very complicated, not least complicated for people to keep track of how much they would have to pay, as well as any complications in administering it. But I think that the prize there is big. And one idea that I've heard suggested that I find quite appealing is that you could possibly start simple and go down the route that Steve was suggesting of a, of a simple distance-based charge initially. Um, and Steve mentioned one way you can do that is just to read distance off the myelometer, odometer. There are other ways you could do it. One is, you know, insurance companies already collect this thing. You can have self-declared mileage and so on. Another way is to have a telematics black box in everyone's car that keeps track of it. Now, if you do it by having a black box in everyone's car that initially just collects a distance, it would be rather easier then to shift from that to saying, well, okay, we're now going to vary the tax, not just based on the distance, but based on distance and place or distance and time of day, and then make it potentially as complicated as you want. Again, there may be practical limits to how far you really want to go down that route. But I think think it's worth considering because I I think having a road pricing system that does vary by time and place, even in a relatively crude way, would be far, far better in terms of the benefits it brings than having one that is just a distance-based charge. Spoken like a true economist. No no, no higher praise. Um, And and you might not be an economist, Stuart, but I have to say, when you say better, that's in your opinion. And my experience, as Paul knows, 2004 to 2009, I lost several years of my life to exploring road pricing. And one of the things that I left that particular job thinking is that time, distance, place, road pricing will not happen in my lifetime, and not just because I ride a motorbike. I intend to live a good long while yet, but because it's too clever by half, um, that the sophistication it implies is, is, I think, faintly ludicrous. But also, and here's a key thing for thinking about it now, back in 2002, 3, 4, in the political arena, road congestion was seen as a really, really big problem. We, I remember the Secretary of State at the time saying, we live on a small and crowded island and doing nothing is not an option. Well, we do live on a small island. It's relatively crowded. And doing nothing turned out to be a perfectly good option for the last 10 years. And my sense today, and I have tried this out on a number of, of well-informed people, is that, yes, post-COVID, traffic jams have come back in parts of the country. But if you offer people road pricing as the cure for the traffic jam, perhaps surprisingly, they'd rather sit in a queue than have this rather complicated pricing system. But where I would be with Stuart is, could we just solve one problem at a time? And this problem that we're trying to solve right now is treasury revenue to pay for good things. And if we did that and had something in that worked, then I think we could all be open-minded that by the time we were satisfied that yet another government IT project hadn't run into the sand or gone wrong, but was actually something we're all perfectly familiar with and it just works. That's the time to think, I wonder if we could make this a bit more sophisticated. I wonder if we could make it work a bit better for people and give them something, let's face it, that they'd actually vote for. 
And I think that's uh, there, there's a degree of agreement there. I think I think uh, you both agreed to start with something simple. I think uh, Stuart would do that with the very clear intention of going to something more sophisticated, and you go into it, uh, Steve, with the sort of yeah, maybe let's um, let's think about this in some considerable period of time. But I'm actually reasonably happy with something not very sophisticated. Well, when we talk about something not very sophisticated, Stuart mentioned the London congestion charge. There's nothing very sophisticated about that. That is a sledgehammer, right? That is, you want to come in here? Pay. You just cross that line. There's a, there's a line across the road and there's a disc, a red disc with a C, a white C in it. You cross that and I'll have some money off you. Very straightforward. Everybody gets it. You know you've got to pay it. The problem that the Mayor for London has got with that scheme is that they've pretty much worked out that they've racked the charge up as high as they can. If they rack it up any higher, it's not actually going to make that much difference to the amount of traffic that's coming into the very central area, which is why the Mayor for London has asked Transport for London to see what and potentially what more sophisticated approach he could take to the greater London area. Remember, the Mayor has just expanded the ultra-low emission zone from the original congestion charge zone, which is the very centre of London, out to the north and south circular. Um, if he could do that, and there's been relatively little pushback, I think. I, think. You know, that, that's, I mean, that's been surprising to me, actually. I mean, we need to finish in a moment, but it's always struck me that that ultra-low emission zone, which must have forced a significant number of people to get rid of their perfectly good old uh, older diesels. I've not seen that as a big political issue, and um, given there'll be a number of people there, presumably, for whom this was you know, quite an issue from the financial point of view, have you picked up anything on that, Steve? Are you, are you surprised that it's been so easy, apparently? Um, yes, I am surprised. I think that it links to something else, though, which is the Mayor for London and and Greater London Authority together, I guess, with, with TfL, have been very clear. London has an air quality crisis. Do you want your children to go up with ill-formed lungs? If so, carry on driving your old diesel around. If not, tick this box. So they've had a very clear crisis to be tackled, and here's a measure to tackle it. And if some people have got older diesels, well, I'm really sorry, but they did set up, and again, this is something Stuart mentioned, they did set up a, a scrappage scheme where if you have one of those older cars, you could do a deal with uh, Transport for London and get some money back for it and perhaps invest that in a slightly newer car, a petrol car that's got better air quality performance, or indeed a travel card. So they went about it that way. The clarity, the purpose of why they were doing it was absolutely black and white clear. A lesson I learned back in the early noughties was if road pricing is about raising money and tackling congestion, that was too complicated for many people. And I think the real immediate pressure is going to turn out to be the raising my money. Well, I'm sure that's how it feels sitting in the Treasury at the moment and, um, uh, and, uh, and will continue to do so for, for a number of years. I think it's probably time we drew this to uh, a close. I mean, I think I take several things from this conversation. I mean, one is that in terms of moving towards electric vehicles, we've got a bit of a hiatus at the moment because uh, companies are finding it hard to make any kind of vehicles. But sales have taken off quite quickly, and um, we will certainly make very good progress over the next decade or so. The big immediate challenge facing the government then is there's a big loss of revenue, but how quickly does it want to start taxing the driving of electric vehicles whilst it's trying to persuade people to go into them? 
And I think the answer has to be relatively soon, because as Stuart in particular has made clear, once people have something for free, then starting to tax them later on is really hard. So I think I would be wanting to push in that direction. And then in terms of the opportunities this gives us in terms of road pricing and so on, again, I think they're, I think we're all agreed we start off simple. You know, Stuart would probably want to move slightly more quickly to something more complicated and economically efficient, whereas Steve is fairly clear about his scepticism about the feasibility of that. But at the moment, it feels like we're, for some period, the best we're going to do is be in that second best world of taxing the distance that people drive in their new electric cars. At the moment, of course, the Chancellor is going to be much more worried about immediate cost of living crises. And I suspect this is not getting an enormous amount of attention as ever the urgent drives out the existentially long-term important. (laughs) But but that's, in a sense, what the Treasury ought to be there for. And it's certainly what we're here for, to try and make sure people are thinking about things that really matter in the long run, as well as getting through today. So thanks ever so much to Steve Gooding from the RAC Foundation and Stuart Adam from the IFS. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. To find out more, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. Please consider donating to the IFS by heading to that website forward slash donate. You can find further information again in the episode description. Thank you and stay well.